Hello, this is Sean. Oh, and Justin. And uh, <laughs> don't forget to say your name now. Right. <laughs> um, and this is the Dot Matrix. And uh, we're continuing our series of, um, I guess you could say almost like, not selfie interviews, but selfie. almost. <laughs> interviewing so, each other. Our second in a two-part series. Yeah. <laughs> Unless we think we want to do it again. <laughs> like, like five years from now or something. Well, it's sort of like when there's a Justin Bieber biography or autobiography. You know there's more to it in five years. <laughs> Lots more to go from here, baby. Um, cool. So last time, uh, as I'm sure many of you heard, that Justin interviewed me, and we were doing a Ala, Alec Baldwin Here's the Thing podcast-style interview. And... Also known as just interviewing. <laughs> right. He didn't invent the, reinvent the wheel or anything. But he does it really well. It's, it's how he does it. It's very yeah. conversational and... He has his own anecdotes and blah, 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 blah. So it's, it's one of our favorite podcasts. So if you, if you enjoy ours, you'll love his. And if you like his, you know, enjoy <laughs> ours. <laughs> you'll enjoy ours. Come find us again. <laughs> we just need Alec Baldwin to mention us and then we'll be fine. <laughs> you might get more than 29 hits. Oh, my God. We'll be one of his ad campaigns on his show. What's in your wallet? Um, <laughs> or legal... <laughs> But legal Zoom. Legal Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so um, so this is, this is going to be fun. Um, and uh, I'm really interested just to hear Justin just uh, open up a bit more, even though he is kind of an open book, um, as I am. And I, I think that's a great thing about our kind of friendship and, yeah. you know, growing up together and things that we notice about each other. Um, the reason why we're friends, the things we call each other out on. Yes. The reason why you call me Preston. Preston. <laughs> but um, I, I think I'll start uh, when, again, because we had known each other for so long, let's yeah. start at the, begin the beginning. Okay, I'm um, ready. I'm Like I said before we press record, I'm nervous, but uh, no, no, let's, no. let's uh, see where this goes. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a couple of things um, okay. I was just going to ask you about. Um, from when we were kids. Okay. And, and one of them was, you know, you know, we talked about with me, uh, you know, my mom and dad, my sister and I. You, however, are the youngest of three siblings. Right. Yes. So I, I wanted to just ask you and have you just talk about what that dynamic is. Because you have your brother, who's your oldest. Yeah. Your brother, Jonathan. Your sister Vanessa who's a year younger correct yeah and then two years passed three years passed two, yeah, years. two years yeah and then you came along yeah. I mean it's more like I think like my brother was born in the beginning of 74 my sister was sort of the end of 75 and I was sort of near the beginning-ish of 77 so they're almost equally apart we're almost equally apart right yeah. right although the calendar years are two right so exactly yeah. So when you think back to when you were a kid, like you, you had a kind of like a typical kind of relationship with your siblings. Do you think, is that something that, that you would categorize it as, or, or do you, you, I think there's, 
as long as the similarities also differences between siblings. And sure. I thought maybe you could talk a bit about that. Like what? what yeah. What, what, well, it's funny because I think you know people who talk, people who know my brother and know me, um, say that we have similar uh, sayings. We will say similar things, but I think it's just every family has like you know a joke you'll always tell, or right. or the way you'll describe something is just the way we have it. So I think there's a lot of similarities in that respect. Uh, I think all three of us have a pretty strong uh, same core values. Um, but we are very different. Like, I think, well, and the dynamics change when you're a kid versus when you're an adult, I'd yeah. say. Like, yeah. Vanessa and I are much closer now. I mean, we live together, and we enjoy each other's company as adults. But when we were kids, we fought a lot. Okay. Like, nice. we really fought a lot. Wow. Okay. And, um, but, it, you know, just, it mellows over time, like, everyone, everything, I would think. Um, but I think all three of us are very different. Like, like my brother is a classical oldest brother, like, takes on a certain amount of responsibility and uh, uh, seriousness and um, especially, you know, being the first child, a male child in an Asian family. Right. A lot of responsibilities with that. And, sure. and I think Vanessa had a very similar stereotypical middle child syndrome, you know, like not quite the youngest, not quite the oldest and being the only woman woman in the in the family of the children and the you know, has a different sort of set of protections that I think my parents had towards her that they didn't have towards my brother and I. And, and I think I'm a cla- I am a classic third child, I would say. You think so? Oh, yeah. Because, you know, my parents took a lot of emphasis with my brother. He was the first. Vanessa was the first girl, so he spent mm-hmm. a lot of time with that. And then they got tired by the time I came along, and they just let me do whatever. Like, I, right. I always think about when I was growing up, my parents had a very strict rule. Don't learn to drive until you're 17. We want one year between when you can drive to when you do drive. Oh, see, that's interesting. I I, I don't know if we've talked about that. Oh. Because I, I think why that's interesting is because, I mean, every time one of us, when they turned 16, was able to drive, it was like, oh, I can't wait to go down yeah. and get my license. I was in no hurry. I took two years before I learned how to drive, and people made fun of me for that. But I don't think I even realized that. So my my brother and sister they had to wait till they're seventeen. But when I turned sixteen, my mother drove the DMV, <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't have to wait the year. And they're just like, oh, whatever. Oh, that's awesome. That's so, awesome. Uh, it was very cl- and I never really thought about family, the science of family dynamics. And yeah. apparently, there's quite a uh, a very stereotypical social construct of family, and. And, and when a friend of mine who uh, I used to do a lot of work with, and I haven't seen her in a couple of years, but last time we had coffee, she, uh, she was talking about the, the family dynamics piece. And, and, and I think I fell into that really clearly as a third child into a family. And I've always thought about this because, yeah, my brother is the first and, and, you know, gets born into a family of three. Mm-hmm. And the oldest child, the only person with attention and then a second child comes, and then that second child has to adapt to this family. Right. And my brother has to adapt to a new sibling. And so there's a family of four. And then I come along as, and so you you have to, as a, as the fifth wheel in a family, you have to learn to just get along. Yeah, yeah. And and I that is sort of me. Like, I'm pretty mm-hmm. easygoing. I mean, I've got you know, certain things I like and... Mm-hmm. In a certain yeah. way, right? You know, I like things a certain way. My yeah. DVDs in a certain order. I know you're thinking that. Yes. And um, but Vanessa's the same way. I'll I'll, I'll make a miscue for her, and she'll get angry. 
So where you do that for me, I do that for Vanessa. Um, but it's it really is true. Like I and I never really thought about. it. I thought more my personality came from being really scared of being stuffed into lockers in grade eight, right? Right. And I do believe that's a big part of it. But I think the other part is just being. How do I fit into a family that already exists of four, of four other people? You just learn to deal with people differently, a little bit more, you know, um, social and that sort of thing. And I think I probably fit that bill. Awesome. Yeah, well, I think you tapped into some, something there, even though I hate saying tapped in, so I was saying serotonin, but you <laughs> tapped into something there that made me think because it's kind of like what you say, because by the time you come along, you, ha- you, you notice the interactions with your, your brother and your sister, you know, and they each kind of have obviously their own personalities and, and how you interact with each of them might be different, but being the youngest... And knowing, okay, well, I've got these four other people in the house. I guess it kind of maybe helped shape kind of who you are. Because oh, totally. you, correct me if I'm wrong, but like you always seem to come across to me as probably one of the most empathic people I know. Hmm. Like, is that, am I pronouncing that word right? Yeah. Because um, I think, do you think that's part of that coming, like, I, Kids from all ages and and um, where they came in the chain of the family and stuff sure. uh, can can always obviously be that and peaceful. But I always saw you as the bridge to kind of solving uh, issues or you know the kind of the clarity or the sober way of thinking on things. Do you think that's part of where that came from? You know, that's a that's a connection that I hadn't really thought about. Uh, maybe, maybe. It's interesting. I, I, I've never thought of that. Uh, yeah, because you always seem to, to me, like, I'll, even if I say, oh, this is ridiculous, or that, and you'll, you'll say, well, wait a second. <laughs> and I thought, well, no, like, maybe there's different things, like, that right. you get from your mom or your dad or, you know, yeah. with your, your brother and sister, or, you know, just growing up in school and stuff. And I thought... Right. Where do you think that came from? You know, I think it does come from a little bit of what you're talking about. Because I, I would say, as a third child uh, in a very talkative family, you know, yeah, everyone yeah. in your family is quite talkative, uh, you learn to observe a lot. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, my brother, you know, develops his character traits as they are. And because he's the only one, and he just models himself after whatever he models himself. Sure, and then yeah. my sister has to react to that. And I'm reacting to two. Mm-hmm. And usually when you think about, like, anything in life, you think about, you know, you... Human nature, you you err and act on one side of the spectrum, and then to compensate because you learn your lesson, you err way on the other side of the spectrum. And then the third time, you end up somewhere in the middle. And I think that's sort of me, and I'm sort of standing there, thinking, oh, well, that's, that's interesting how my brother handled it this way. Right. Very... Uh, harsh in one direction and there's my sister ha- handling the same situation very harsh in another direction sure. and I'm like well where's the middle ground here and so I think I come to that or and I, and I and you come to middle ground by understanding and being empathetic I would say of the two extremes or the two other perspectives yes. you know maybe well I think partly uh, emotional there's the emotional reaction and then also more of a headstrong like okay this is kind of the way things should be. So I think I thought that was pretty interesting. I th- I always thought of that aspect with you, um, just kind of as we've gone through the year. So I, I just wanted to touch on that. So that was a very good answer. Um, thank you. No problem. 
so we talked about music a lot, you and I, and we still mm. do. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, because you know, we've we've both liked different styles of music, but we the one that we actually bonded with a lot, and I think that made us even closer, like growing up, is is jazz. Mm. But as where I've kind of gravitated towards certain styles of jazz and instrumental. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I, I want you to please tell the listeners what what was the first vocal jazz that really touched you? Because you've been a lot of times not only melody based with music, but you you did gravitate towards song and mm. singers. What yes? What was the one that really got you? That what was it that you said? I like this music. I, I, I want to open my world to this music. Oh yeah, uh, it's very clear. It's grade eight, I guess it was. Uh, 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 this just band class. I guess it wasn't really stage band or whatever. Just band class. Mister Hobson played us. You know how he played us a lot of. Miss Saigon and musicals, and we were all into Miss Saigon was the big thing for us as, as growing up in junior high. And he also played a CD. Uh, uh, it's a compilation CD, not even a, an actual album, of Joe Williams and Count Basie Orchestra. And okay. Joe Williams, the vocalist, Count Basie and his orchestra was the orchestra. And I forget what... I don't know if he played the whole album or whatever, but I know he played uh, Every Day I Have the Blues. Right. And that, to me is the if i had to name one song that i think is the best song ever recorded and performed i'm not quite sure if it's the best song ever written but i think the all of it comes together so perfectly like and i listen like if i, I have like a four thousand songs on my ipod or my itunes right and when that song comes on i never skip it to this day this wow. is like 20 some years later like I, I will rare I don't think I've ever skipped it actually. Has it ever left your iPod since we've had no. iPods? <laughs> no, no, never. And when I got you know, and at that time no one had CDs, it was a new thing. Right. We all had tapes. Yeah. And I bought that C D, that exact compact jazz it was called, it was a um compilation. And before I even had a CD player. So I wanted that C D. That's awesome. And and I just love the well, I love the fact that it was recorded, that song was recorded in 1957, and it sounded so crisp, like it was, someone had recorded it to, of that time. Right. It just, you know, I always think about 1957 as that year <laughs> where re recording technology just hit a, went over the hump, right? That's and, right. Yeah, that's and a good point. everything before that, you know, 56, you can get some that sounds really great, and some, you're just, okay, well, that's, that's before that line. Right. And so it was a, a beautiful recording the the arrangement of the orchestra was so stellar the lyrics are actually quite sad but the pace moves along just in that just nice uh syncopation and yeah. the and, and i think at the time you could hear you know the left speaker and the right speaker had different playing against each other and, right. and uh and yeah it's just it's still like the favorite recording i've ever I've ever heard. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I I do think back now that you mentioned that because you've had you've got a bunch of Joe Williams albums and and you've played me stuff over the years, but I I I can't say that I actually remember that specific instance. Right. 
Um, I remember him playing us a few things, uh, you know, Sketches of Spain. Yes, oh, right, yeah. You know, which totally. is a big thing that opened up for us. Yeah. Um, but I noticed, though, that you, you know, you've got the Ella songbooks. Yes. There's uh, Our Love for Shirley Horn. Yes. What is, um, what is, can you give me, like, five examples Okay. Of some of your, your favorite jazz tunes? Oh, gosh. Um, and who they're sung by or played by? Wow. Well, uh, you know, I think we've talked about this, but not on necessarily on the recording for a podcast. But, you know, uh, I do have that gravitation towards vocalists because I just love the sound of the human voice and right. the interpretation of emotion and ideas. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get emotion very much in um you know uh, an amazing miles davis uh recording or oscar peterson or what have you but something about the vocal interpretation of ideas as part of it right to me it just puts it over the top uh i would say uh and this is what we, i think we have talked about like shirley horn singing um uh, if you love me mm-hmm. from here's the life yeah is again one of my top top and every time it comes on i rarely ever skip it like just the the way she just starts quietly and builds up to uh that piano roll that she's famous for just to culminate into that just almost an orgasm of song right um that just threw me for a loop and i mean i've had and i first that was the first record i've got of hers and then i got some of the earlier ones before and you could see the progression but just overlaying it with the orchestra added that certain level of class that I hadn't anticipated right. and uh, really uh, enjoying. And and then I, besides, I had seen it on television first before I bought the album. Uh, she performed with the Boston Pops and John Williams, the oh, conductor, yeah, yeah. and played that song. And then she played Here's the Life, which is the title track of that CD, uh, which is still great too, but If You Love Me was just perfect. Pretty yeah. much every everything, um, a culmination of everything that is Shirley Horn. Yeah, you say yeah. I, I, I was a lifelong fan, still am. Um, what are the other ones? Like out of all like, the Ella songbooks, what what's what's one record that like uh, album that you, you would suggest? Well, I would say, you know, the Duke Ellington songbook. I forget if it's volume two or three. It's the one with the with the smaller orchestra, uh, the smaller sort of a, uh, uh, I think quintet or, or trio or something. That is just grooves from beginning to end. Like it's just so, just fun, right? Um, uh, yeah, that for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I've always been a big fan of. Uh, I'm not a huge Johnny Hartman fan, but I do love the Johnny Hartman John Coltrane. Yeah, like, that album was just so beautifully done and it tamed his voice quite substantially from that loungy what i guess michael buble could be channeling you know (laughs) to actually being a really solid classic album yeah and you know i and i hard pressed to think about um a particular oscar peterson album but you know we always talk about him to three freedom and you can't help but cry sometimes when you hear that song. Yeah. And then Oscar Peterson's role at the That's end. That's right. Like, the, stunning. 
And it's interesting because when that came out, that's when Shirley Horn was sort of sort of uh, getting uh, her her start, really. Right. Or or more like really coming into her own in the early sixties. I wonder if she got her piano role from that. But it's very interesting you mention that because it is it is very it sends shivers, but it's actually kind of a different kind of sound. Right. Um. So we've played jazz too, and um, I I want you to talk about a little bit about. How the vibraphone started. Ah. Uh, Why did you start with... What got you into that? Well... Oh, wow. That's thinking back. Um, <laughs> it was from, I would say, three failed years or of being a French horn player and just not having the lung capacity. <laughs> it, it just was not going to happen for me. And, you know, I had planned, spent many years playing piano and, and you know, studying piano but there was a certain woman named Grace who was a piano player, so there's no way I could compete against Grace right. as a piano player, so I couldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, although, you know, we did share the piano for a while. Um, yeah, just, I remember yeah. you guys sitting down together in front of the keyboard. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. I'm like, I have no place doing that, but I, <laughs> there I was. Uh, and then, you know, just, I don't know if every school had a vibraphone, but, you know, the junior high we were at, and so did the senior high, had a vibraphone. And I think it's just, you know, it's an instrument that's worth having in a rhythm section of any school band. Right. And it's probably a little bit easier to maintain than a xylophone would be when you think about just the metal slats are just going to be more sturdier, I would assume, than the wood slats of a xylophone. And so there it was. Same layout as a piano. Yeah, the yeah. exact same layout. Awesome. And, and at that point, I'd switched over to jazz band as opposed to just regular band. Right. And, and it was really fascinating because you know especially when you think about in senior high and i can't remember when the transition happened in senior high or, or just or was it also part of junior high but the fact that there was no parts like there is no parts for vibraphone in any sheet music that you get right and so all i had to do was just take the piano part and just play along and do something different and and it was pretty amazing that the band teachers that we had just allowed me to do it you know like I mean, what, what are they going to mark me on? Yeah. There's nothing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Play the right hand of your piano part, please. <laughs> okay. And and it was fun because I got to hang out with you in the back and kind of be part of the cool rhythm section. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was awesome. I loved it. Well, because that often happened because it was great being in the back, like being behind the drums or, you know. But a lot of times, like my friends in the class, they would be right up you know, in all sorts of different places. I could never really, because we would kind of goof around back there sometimes, but no, that's really funny. So I, I just thought, you know, whenever we played and we have the videotape evidence, like I, <laughs> I look back fondly on those times because um, you, you just had, you just figured out a sense of how to master like tasteful melody, like melodic playing. And I just thought that, I thought, I thought that just really worked with what we were doing. Um, not only that, but you, you actually used to be a singer. Yes, years ago. Tell us, um, about what you did. Uh, you were singing in a choir. Yes, wow, yes, that's right. Um, it's funny because it was such an integral part of my life at that time, and I started when I was six, and it was the BC Boys Choir, and my brother was in the choir for a couple of years, and I really, really wanted to join too <laughs> because my brother was in it. I wanted right. to be with my brother. 
And we ended up like performing at some like local television show and they interviewed me because I was like the youngest one there. And he's like, Why are you joined the choir? Like, so I can be with my brother. And my brother was so embarrassed. <laughs> but it was true. That's what I wanted to do. And and my dad, you know, who always loved singing, uh, just wanted his boys to be part of it. And and it's funny because that choir was a little bit of a thorn in our family because it was a boys' choir, so Vanessa couldn't join it. She kinda it partly what made her feel a little bit uh, of, a, of a sore thumb to the family because she wasn't part of it. Oh, okay. So, you know, I mean, we've talked about it over the years, and she's, like, you know, fine with it now, obviously. But uh, but back then, it was definitely, you know, like, we were able to go to this choir, and we were able to travel. Was We did a lot of tours in Holland. That was our big thing. Like, yeah. We were famous in Holland Absolutely. for some reason. And so it was an odd experience as a child to sing a lot. I mean, I was never really a... I, well, I was a little bit of a soloist, uh, you know, when I was in... Later in the years before I my voice changed. I was, I was there for about six years singing, from six to about 12, 13. And then my voice started to change, and then I just stopped at a certain point. So... So I have a good, you know, diaphragm for singing if I was a soprano. <laughs> But ask me to sing now, and like I would just only do it in the shower. But um, I learned a lot. I mean, you learn a lot as a kid when you travel for like six weeks in the summer. In eighty, like eighty seven, I spent six weeks in Holland, and you know we was billeted in uh, family in, in Germany. We spent some time in Cologne. Wow. Eighty eight again uh, in Holland, and that was like the twentieth anniversary of the choir tenth tour of Holland, and we had that CBC film crew film us around and. Yes. And they ended up using me as a, one of the, you know, cute little narrators and stuff. It was like, <laughs> it was crazy. Um, so it was, you know, I mean, it taught me a lot about, uh, not that I say I was famous, but like you, you actually do your performance and then right. people would like want your autographs afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Like it was crazy. I, I don't even know how that didn't make me feel like, a giant head or something, you know what I mean? Like, well, that's my the ego. thing because you don't ever do that, you know. Like, no matter <laughs> what it is that you know, what is a great job or you know, you're getting an, uh, some kind of mention for something, you've never been one to let it get to your head. Well, you know, it's funny because we joke about that as a, 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 as our family. It's one of the there's a couple of things that are 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 really known for our family. One is our giant hoe lips. <laughs> we talk about the, the red, luscious lips of, of our family, which everyone on my dad's side and all of us have these lips. Okay. And... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the second thing is, is you know, my dad tended to, to lean towards being a bit boastful. Yeah. You know, and whenever anyone us in our family starts to be boastful about something like, oh, I just got a great new job or my baking is one first prize in something. Right. We always joke, oh, 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 that's a whole hair characteristic, just being boastful. And I, you know, I, I, I fall into that trap sometimes, but I, I've been, I have to admit, I've been quite conscious of that. Do you think as we kind of grow older too, we do kind of get conscious of, um, Things like that, like things that come out in us. I know we touched on that last time when we spoke, but like, because when I think back, I, I, I hadn't thought about that in a long time, like really even consciously, but that, that does kind of ring a bell. Anytime I come by your house growing up, uh, your dad would always have 
something amazing to say. Like, <laughs> whether we were sitting around having dinner or something, yeah. or he, he was always so proud yeah. of you guys. And I just thought that was fabulous. Like, I think, and I think that that's rubbed off on you. Like, when you say, you know, you're more conscious of it, but... You know, when you do something great, you, you're like, okay, well, this is this is actually kind of cool, and I'm I'm gonna mention this. You know right. what I mean? Like, well, what I liked about my dad is, I mean, it's such a great environment to be in. Like, but my mother was a, a very, she drove us a lot to be the best we could be. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think if you think about a classic stereotypical Asian mother, oh, you know, you you're trying to be as good as as what your mother wants, and you're never reaching it because they always want more. Like, oh. Well, you're a doctor. Well, you should be a neurosurgeon or, you know, things like oh, that, right? Yeah. You know, and, and my mother wasn't really like that, but she, you know, she did, did strive us to be the best. Yeah. And, you know, not to say there was a good cop, bad cop kind of thing, but, but my dad was always just proud. Well, yeah, you know? I was, I was going to ask you a bit about that because, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of parents like could, could, could be that way, kind of good cop and bad cop. Like I, I know, I know you're, you may have had a little pressure on you as, as growing up in certain ways, as we all kind of did in different ways. But did you, did you, was that kind of the sort of what you felt was that your dad maybe was more a little bit like, okay, well, let's kind of see how it goes. Or, or was he right. kind of more kind of like what you were saying, you know, pushing you guys to, cause he, he must've pushed you as well. He did. Um, maybe in a different way, but in a different way, I would say the pressure to perform and to be the best you could be was definitely from uh, our mother. Yeah. And I learned so much around discipline, around work ethic from her. Yeah. Uh, I learned a lot of my social sensibilities from my dad. And my mother was, although was definitely talkative, yeah. was more quiet in yeah. public settings and, and wasn't boastful in that sort of sense. And, and but my dad was. And it, oh, to, sometimes you'd grin a lot, like, oh, dad. <laughs> It's awesome. But, you know, you you learn to love those things when you get older, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and given the dynamics of where my dad is now, it's just nice to remember those moments. And and it was funny because he would be a bit boastful about himself, I guess, which is sort of where we joke with our family, saying that's like a, a whole family trait. Right. But what I appreciate that he was, he was also boastful of us. Like, he wasn't... Yeah. And... and, and to know that we had done well meant that he had done a good job. Right. And, uh, and I know I kind of like to take that side of it a lot. Like, yeah. like when people I know do something really well, like when you have a new album out or, or you're on tour and you're doing amazing things, I like to be boastful about that. Like, not that I rubbed off in any way on that, but it just, there are cool people in my life doing cool things. And like, I'm like the proudest uncle that there probably was. I'm sure as you are, uh, are a proud uncle as well. Like, Whenever Kimberly or Erica does anything, I'm like, that's pretty freaking amazing. It is pretty cool. And I think that's kind of cool. And I like that, you know, I think we have to be, I've learned a lot to be, from my dad, to be generous around that. Because we, especially when you get, I'm getting older. Mm. We tend to be so harsh on our, ourselves a lot. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm harsh on myself too, like damn it, I don't, I'm not where I should be in life uh, with relationships or work or whatever, whatever that may be, depending on what the time of year it is or day in, day in the, the week it is or whatever. And we just, as human beings, are predisposed to not be satisfied. <laughs> and I think, but it's hard for us to be satisfied with ourselves because that's part of the, the problem of the predisposition we have. Right. So if everyone was more generous to others, 
in that way, I think it'd be we'd all be much happier. <laughs> no, I I fully agree, and I think you embody that uh, exceptionally. I think you do. Um, okay, well, I know we talked talked a lot about um, childhood music stuff that yeah. you know we've bonded over the years. Um, one of the one of the interesting things that I I thought that you know especially as we kind of got our kind of life aspirations kind of going like career or you know things we like to do um you know I've obviously gone in a certain way but but you and we like to joke about this a lot is as the different career path like the different twists and turns through our career paths and stuff when you've gone and you've become this and that it we always talk about how you have to explain to me (laughs) what it is that you what do. the hell is it? <laughs> I'm the Chandler Bing of our group of friends because I'm, what does Chandler do again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a complicated one, and uh, it, it it although again this is gonna sound boastful, it's not meant to sound boastful at all, but it's been helpful that Barack Obama exists in this in this world. <laughs> yes, I know <laughs> because he talked about being one of his histories being a community organizer right. and a community activist or a community builder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the Republican, uh, you know, right-wingers say, oh, well, you know, well, he's building community. We're making decisions or, you know, right. like, or whatever, right? right? And yeah, so yeah. <laughs> people kind of can poo-poo that. Right. But I would, and someone actually used that label uh, with me about a couple of years ago and said, oh, yeah, you know, you're, you're a community builder or a community developer. I'm like, I am? Okay. And I think if you want to give it a label, that kind of has been my life's work. And that was surprisingly not where I, I thought I would be in, in, in my career, you know? Right. And, you know, thinking about all this conversation with music, and it's funny, I've described this story twice already today. Oh, this really? This is my third time. Yes. Oh, oh okay, yes. well. <laughs> but it's funny. Hopefully you don't mind. No. <laughs> but it's really funny because I met with someone this morning from England who was, you know, came to the office, was, you know, meeting with my boss and met with me for an hour, just about, you know, um, community and, uh, and, uh, and just, you know, curious about what, how community is, is, uh, social enterprise and social entrepreneurship is happening in British Columbia. And I started to talk about what I know about the topic. And he's like, wow, you're really, you really know your stuff and the details of it. Like, how do you know all this stuff? And I just talked to the story. And then this afternoon I was, um, so I work at the university and I was, a I am a residence life mentor. So someone who's a, a student who's got a kind of pretty senior job in, in, you know, student housing. Right. Okay. And, and so because it's such an important job, they, they, they match up those students with staff, professional staff at UBC and to be their mentors, just to, you know, tell them about what is life like outside of university and what to expect once you graduate and, and how to do because they're managing other staff who are, you know, leaders on certain floors or, right. you know, like residence advisors and some of that. And so, you know, you can give them tips on how to handle that because handling human dynamics is, can be challenging, right? When right. you're early 20s and, oh, yeah. you know, and yeah, human yeah, yeah. beings are so rational. <laughs> It's like, you know, early days of understanding how does it like to be on a strata, right? Oh. <laughs> Which you know all about. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was telling him, he was curious about where my story was and that sort of stuff, right? And oh. so the story goes, uh, and, and you, you know, this part is no surprise to you, is that, you know, I finished high school and, 
and didn't know what the hell I wanted to do in life, know that everyone else in my family was a science person, and I had no interest in science. Uh, and I'm like, what can I... And I promised my mother before she passed away to go to university. That I was, So I was going to university. Right. Uh, there was no qualms about it. Just, you know, you do it. And I was, my resolve was there. But I didn't want to just do science, so I decided to do business. Because I figure, because I so loved music and jazz, that I was going to start my jazz club. Right. right. That was the that was I my remember. career path. I'm going to start my jazz club, which you never know, still might happen. Uh, <laughs> and so I needed to know how to market it, how to do the accounting for it, how to buy inventory, all that sort of stuff. So I figured I'll just get a business degree. It'll be fine. And so that was my trap, thinking, well, whether or not I actually start the jazz club right away, or at least I'll just have a practical degree and do whatever I can. And then I was in commerce, finally, my second year, and that's when I, you know, my dad gave me this application for this leadership program, which, you, you know, you know a little bit about. And I'm like, oh, well, I don't too busy with school i don't want to have to do this and they know it'll look good on your resume right. which is what a lot of people say right 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 and i'm like oh okay you're right and um and so i'm like so i fill it out the application send it in for this program like the day before it's due and then i get into the program and uh you know my first motivation was just gonna look at my resume and then the in the end of the program i was like fascinated by community and the issues that present itself, the stuff that we've talked about for 54 episodes in our sure. podcast, sure. because these are complicated issues. These aren't yes or no answers. These are yes, but mm -hmm. no, however, right. you know, and a lot of people find that frustrating. I find it really interesting. Like yeah. I find the nuances really interesting and like people work in this field. Like, I mean, we all live in community in some way, but people actually make a living, like, trying to handle these things. So it really changed my life, actually, in terms of what I wanted to do. And I knew I wanted to be in that arena, whatever that looked like. And and so my various jobs have been in and around that world forever. Right. Uh, forever. For the you know, 13, 14 years that I've been working. And, and it just gets complicated on the nuances of what exactly is my job? Because the first six years is really easy. It's volunteer centers and promoting volunteerism. Yes. And that's an easy one. I, you know, the, the complicated thing that I had to with my family was like, okay, you're working for Volunteer Canada. Do you get paid? Like, that was my aunt and uncle always kept asking those questions. Sure. Like, you're earning a salary, right? Like, yeah, you, you I got used to, to those questions. You know? <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and, and especially one of the interesting things about when you work in volunteerism, people always ask about the definition of volunteering in terms of like, oh, you know, oh, Sean's coming through my door and he, he wants, he just wants to volunteer because it looks good on his resume. Right. And, uh, oh, well, you know, he's not, that's not true volunteering. That's just, you know, it's like being sentenced to community service, right? Like there's the motivation's not there. And, you know, I know because that was my original motivation. And it's like, well, if you treat people like they're only going to be there because they need that 35 hours and because they want it to look good on their resume. And you know what? They'll do it just for that purpose. Yeah, yeah. But if you have an open invitation for whoever walks through your door for whatever reason, and you're doing some really good work in community and what you truly believe in, you open your uh, a window into that passion, regardless of whether or not Sean comes in the door because it looks good on resume, he actually might engage with that energy, and you might really inspire him to do something, or to be a part of it, or to be an ally, or just do the 35 hours but be... Glad he did it, right? Like, like I don't know. Like, I find 
sticking to true altruism is kind of a weird thing. Like, right, like yeah. people just volunteer for whatever reason. They, people get connected to community in whatever reason they do. Um, and so that really helped inform me because I came from that experience. Like, if someone treated to me like if I just was going to, you know, get involved in community to look good on my resume, I probably wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't do it. The, the, the second six years was a bit murky in my career because it was working with, you know, cooperative principles. And you think about, you know, credit unions and co-ops and the, the notion of reciprocity and that um, the world is is uh, made up of people who are equal but different yes. and that everyone has something to contribute but also something to gain from working together and right. collaborating. Right. I, I fell in love with that concept for that mm -hmm. the second six years of my life. Which is very different from work from working in a nonprofit or charitable model. When you know, when you think about charity and philanthropy, someone's got money and someone doesn't got money. Right. And you, the person with money, helps the person who doesn't have money. And so there's a power dynamic here. And someone's giving and someone's receiving, or someone's asking for a handout. So I think that's a bit challenging. So the next six years was really about no, no, no. Like I'm not looking for money from Sean, and Sean's not better than me because he's got more money than I do. I'm not to say that that's the way it's always framed, but uh, that it's about Sean and I, Sean might be, you know, money, money rich, but Justin here might be knowledge rich or experience rich or right. love rich or what, you know, like I have other assets that are not money that you probably want to benefit from over time. Right. 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 And and I think about, you know, and so that the second six years was really working in that world and helping nonprofits work more collaboratively. So it's a bit complicated, but it's uh, principles of life in how you want to work in organizations and community. And then I'm bringing both of those lives together here at the university doing that kind of work. So, Well, it's interesting you mentioned about, um, you know, the, the people with the money helping the people without the money or right. whatever there's there's it's kind of philanthropy's kind of gone in different kind of ways and different ways of kind of looking at it and and what's actually the best way like way back in the 80s there was live aid right just send your money in and then 20 years later they have live aid when they're like i'm just using as an example mm -hmm. of one that i know best because you you're more in touch with that world than i am but the second time around, they're like, well, instead of sending your money, this is just for the awareness. So do you think that old school, just philanthropy, throwing money at a, at, at a, a problem or, uh, you know, a big issue is, is still has a part? Or do you think it, it's more closer to that, well, they've got something I want, I've got something they want, you know? Like, is, is, there, a, right. is there a need for both or can we just simply... You know, because you got the Clinton Foundation, you got uh, Bill Gates, yeah. all of his work. Like, were they just fund and fund and fund and fund? Do you think there's a, a, a good mix of those type of ideals, or how, what's the best way? Do you think? Uh, I think you had it when there's a when you said if there's there room for is there need for both or or right. all kinds, and I think that's the answer. And it's funny because like this, you know, there's this people ask you what the hell do I do every day? I have these conversations every day. And can you imagine having these kind of really interesting conversations every day and being paid to do it? That's my, that's my world. Yeah. And now I have to, and I have these conversations now thinking about the resources and the assets and also the, the deficits of a university institution in these conversations. Right, right. And, you know, the, the middle two years I was having these conversations, but the, the organization I was with, the cooperative that I was with, it was a great cooperative built on amazing values. Um, 
but you know, it had limited resources to do what it could do. And now we're having similar conversations in my new job, but there's a gigantic university potentially involved in how uh, resources that you could draw upon. So it's quite fascinating. And I would say, you know, the answer, because I get back, that was a little bit of a tangent. No, all right. but, uh, but just to further explain what the hell it is that I do. <laughs> 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 but uh, I think the answer is that everything is needed. Uh, because although we say, you know, we make things too complicated, like, you know, there's a lot of complex thing when you have more than one person living in close proximity to each other, right? right? Like, because, you know, although you and I are very similar, it would be complicated for us to live together because we have different opinions. We have two different minds, you know? And I think there is a need for charity and philanthropy, um, if done intelligently and, and, you know, with thought. Uh, you know, there is, there is a need for distribution, redistribution of wealth, I think, to some degree. That's why governments exist. That's why we pay taxes. Uh, and there's some, and, and not just in the redistribution of wealth piece, but also the fact that sometimes there's just stuff that we just can do better together than right. not. Like, you're not going to build a road for the, in front of your, uh, your, your, you know, your complex and everyone chip in and do, to, to build and maintain the road from the left side of your wall to the right side of your wall. Like that's ludicrous. <laughs> like we we all pay so that we can we can have an infrastructure infrastructure of roads. Right. You know, and sort of when you know, and that's why it was so annoying when they took that Obama quote, like, "See that road? You didn't build that, or you didn't uh, success, you know, that whole thing, right?" Uh, like uh, it was an insane. That's not exact. That's not at all what he meant, right? Like no. we were it's collective success, right? Right. And um, and and I've talked about this too. I've been thinking about sort of. Sorry, this is less about my life, but it's about my philosophy, I guess. Oh, but that's the thing. To me, this, this, <laughs> this to me, this is about how Justin thinks and, and how he applies it to everything. Well, I think you know the the middle six years of my professional life around cooperatives has really been instructive because I think although there's a place for a lot of those different you know uh, market solutions where you know philanthropy, redistribution of wealth, and all that sort of stuff, and the market economy, which is separate from all of those things. What I love about cooperate cooperatives as a legal structure or as an economic principle is that it forces normal human characteristics as part of the equation. Right. Like I, I think I've said this to you off off camera, off you know podcast, where like you know if I'm a hot dog vendor and you need and you're hungry and you want a hot dog, I will sell you that hot dog and you give me money. Right? <laughs> it's, it's simple. Yeah. Like, the value of the hot dog to satiate your hunger is four dollars and fifty cents, right? right? And the because we based our economy on the the non emotional non entity called money, I don't have to have a relationship with you. Like I don't have to know that I have to continue knowing who Sean is because eventually uh, he'll come back and I'll get something from him. I may not need the four dollars and fifty cents. But the four dollars fifty cents could turn into uh, a Big Mac for me later because when I get hungry and I don't want a hot dog. Right. So, but you know, we I can't predict what I need from Sean, so I'm gonna get money from Sean, so that we don't have to worry about who the hell Sean is, right? <laughs> and that has created a bit of disconnect in our society, right? right? But when you think about reciprocity, which I love as a concept, you will be hungry. I make hot dogs. I give you a hot dog. And you don't give me four dollars and fifty cents. You, I just trust that I'm gonna see you around later on, and maybe three weeks from now, 
um, I know you're a drummer. I need um, some music at an event that right. I like to do. And you come and play a couple of songs. Yeah. And you, you know, but that requires me to trust that we will have a relationship. It requires us to stay connected. And I trust that eventually you have something of value that I will eventually want to benefit from. from. And I like that. That's called life. Yeah, right. I mean, it's sort of like, I was saying like, uh, you know, when, you know, when you and I talk to each other on the phone or something, right? And I say, you know, you're having a real problem with Elaine. I'm just joking. But let's say, you know, whatever. <laughs> and you're like griping with me or something about whatever thing that you're really upset about. And I counsel you. I don't naturally go, okay, now here's my problem that I want you to counsel. Like, I'm not going to fabricate a problem that I have. Mm-hmm. But I trust that eventually you'll have my back when I need to talk about something. Absolutely. And that's called life, and it's called friendship, and it's called connection. It's about social... You know, like, so I think that's what I think we have to think about when we live our lives, not just as human beings with friends, but as organizations to organizations, as governments to citizens. as all. Like I think it just it makes a lot more sense to trust that people have things of value, whether or not, you know... You don't have. You will never have four dollars and fifty cents. That's fine, but eventually I'll need a great musician or painter or I don't know whatever, right? So I don't know. That's the that's the kind of stuff I think about. That that's really cool because I I kind of I know we've touched on things similar to that kind of even even on our podcast, but I I I I'm glad that you went into detail because. It, it, it is such a complicated thing and and um you to me you're, you're one who can actually just have the open mind to actually process those different questions and not not kind of get lost in the process you know what i mean what what part of that kind of evolving uh career was when you had a chance to work in ottawa for instance that was the uh that ottawa period was the early days oh okay. um that was in the first six years Okay. And was there something about working abroad that you found was uh, uh, kind of a, a, a it, like, obviously it's a change, but was there some things that you took from that? Like, would you do that again? Would you, where you are right now, right. down the road, do you see yourself trying something like that again? Because I thought it was really cool. <laughs> and And I've never had the balls to do it. Or... We've, you know, there's always stuff going on where we, you know, we didn't right. do it, but it's something we've always thought of. But do you find that that, that was that was a, a highlight or, or? That's a great question. Uh, it was a mom, it was a very momentous time in my life. I mean, you know, I I learned a heck of a lot about myself. There's a one. It was not only was I living you know, away from home. Right. Uh, so I was living on my own as an adult, like not a student on exchange yeah. or whatever. Like, this is life. And it was freaky to, you learn so much about who you are when you don't have, you know, you're not with your parents or you're not with siblings or you're not with the connection that is your friends and everything. So I did learn a lot about myself. And of course, you know, in and around that time, that's when my father got into his accident and then my life changed considerably after that. And then I moved, which is why I moved back. Um, and I probably, you know, if that didn't happen, I probably would have stayed in Ottawa for a bit longer. I would, I would say I would have been there for maybe three to five years as opposed to just the two. Right. Um, 
But when I came back, and especially in the circumstances that I came back when I had to care for, for my dad, uh, what was the biggest lesson was where I call home, and that is here. And, you know, I wouldn't say that I had the balls to go out on my own. I would say I had the cluelessness of what that meant to, to move away from home. And I think everyone, there is a great opportunity. Everyone should, if they have an opportunity to do that, uh, you know, the mutual connection that, that we know is moving to London, right? And it's amazing. And it is ballsy. And it is courageous. And I would do that again if I knew it was a time-limited experience, like, which is what sure. I was thinking about going back to get my master's, which still might be in the cards um, at some point. You know, I wanted to go abroad to do it, you know, just one year. Because when I came back, to town after living in Ottawa for two years I learned a lot about what it meant to be away from you guys and family yeah. and uh, like I think about sort of those I always think about it was I, I went, came back home and I was you know quit my job caring for my dad and I was going to like caregiver support network uh, meetings and family members are talking about or people who are dealing with various other caregiving issues sure. whether it's Alzheimer's with a spouse or a parent or what have you were very much like oh you know my siblings don't we argue all the time about how to care for our dad or or uh, my my spouse has Alzheimer's and no one of none of our friends come by to visit they don't know what to do they don't know how to say anything so they just or they think they don't want they don't want to be bothered because you're really busy and when you're not you're just sitting there <laughs> watching Wheel of Fortune That's right. or whatever. And and it's and it's funny when I not funny, but when I came back just I remember I remember so clearly that one time that all of you guys came over and I just to this day it brings me such joy. And you guys had this like ice cream cake. And and it, I think I can't remember what it is. It said like happy Tuesday or something or yeah. or just hello or whatever it was. It just it was completely perfect because it was so me, it wasn't had to be. It didn't have to be someone's birthday to come over. You just came over, and um, and hearing all the other ways in which other, you know, people's networks and families were dealing with this situation was yeah. so different than how you guys handle it and how we all together have handled the various things that we've gone through in our lives. And and you don't move away from that lightly, and that's what I've learned. And I moved away from that lightly. And of course, it was a great time to move away lightly because nothing was going on. Everyone was healthy. There's sure. no drama in life. Yeah. But, you know, that can change in a dime, and it did. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I learned. It's like, you can have great opportunity, but it's not something you should take lightly because you've got to remember what you're drawing yourself away from. Right, right. Wow. Yeah. So, I, yeah. I, I, uh, I think back a lot about when you were away because... Well, at the time, I think you were the first one of any of us who had actually made that move, I think. Oh. I know Kevin went... It was in Toronto. Toronto, but I think that yeah. was a bit later. I think it was, yeah. And um, I just... It's I don't know. Point. That that was a bit impactful for me, oh, if I, I, never if thought I of may that. say, because I remember when you w went away and, and I was like, Oh, you know, like he'll be gone for however long, but you know, I always thought you'd come back, and and I know obviously ultimately you did, uh, but I, I have to say, and I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you before, but it 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 did make me think, like, if not so much at the time, but 
shortly thereafter because I thought, well, you know, one of my best friends is, is just not close by. And that, that did affect me a lot. I, it's, it's hard to really put into words. Like, I guess we just realize even since then how fast time goes as we get older. But, but even during that time, like I know we spoke on the phone a few times or whatever, yeah. but it, you know, email was, it was around, but it, it wasn't right. like, like it is today and, and all this. Kind of, so I thought it was an interesting time of our lives for when you did that. So I just thought I'd say that because... Hmm. That, that's why I wanted to ask you about it, because I know that, obviously, it was a big, um, that whole time was really big in your life, and I, I appreciate knowing what you've taken from it. Um, one thing that uh, I always thought was cool, um, another thing about Justin that I oh. thought was cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> over the years, like you mentioned, with the boys' choir, you've yeah. gone to Holland, and, but you've made other trips. Mm. And you've gone on other vacations. Um, can you talk about one that that you found was um, either the most impactful or the one that 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 um, you found yourself really in tune with, like your favorite place to go, and not only because it's like you know cool culture or whatever, but right. the one place that you have the fondest uh, memories from visiting, Italy. Yeah. Yeah, by far. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I was in China last year with Vanessa, which is an amazing trip. Yeah. Like, and I just, and I took from that how much I loved Hong Kong and how much, although I never grew up there, how being from Hong Kong and my heritage, it's just ingrained in your blood and how just wonderful it can feel. Like that, I took away from that trip. Uh, from being in Barcelona and doing the trains from Barcelona to, to Paris and, and all the fun little adventures that I had with Shalsha was amazing. Like, we went to these sand dunes in France. I'm like, sand dunes in France? Like, what the hell is that? Fast it was pouring rain, but it was fascinating. And so uh, that was a great trip. But Italy was something that was so out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. Like, I, I, I try to do something really fun at least once a year and try to, you know get outside of my comfort zone and you know being that i you know have have a chronic uh, illness of being single it's hard to travel as a single person uh as easily as you as you can as a, as a duo uh, as a duo not simply because of the single supplement and all those different things but like you can share experiences with someone else and feed off of each other and someone can be a bit more forward and someone can be a little more reserved you can switch those roles and still get a gr- amazing experience. And um, I would say spending that time with, with, with our, our, our friend Chalsha doing that, you know, uh, trip from Barcelona to, to Paris, uh, I had a lot of, had to benefit a lot of that. I cried over lots of food uh, <laughs> in, on that trip. Um, but Italy, I think back, and that was 2007, so it's a while ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doesn't seem that long ago. I know it, it doesn't, but it was uh, simply phenomenal because I was on my own. It was two weeks in a one place of Bologna on this course, and I got to meet a lot of great people, some who I, I still connect with, and uh, just got to live a bit of a life yeah. uh, in in that city. Had great food, had that amazing, like, you know, Charlie Chaplin live orchestra silent movie uh, experience like just so Italy and then I had the two weeks after when I was traveling on my own and I learned so much about what I'm comfortable with 
what I'm not comfortable with, I and how I what the pace of travel needs to be for me, which is I get high anxiety about getting from A to B, and we've talked about this, right? And but once I get to B, and I need to know where I'm gonna sleep at at place B, and then I just can get feel at ease, and then I and so I need to stay in a place for at least two or three days before I can uproot myself and go somewhere else. Right. Um, which is why when I did Barcelona and, and France, I started for nine days in Barcelona and then made my way and ended with five days in France, right? So so I knew that rhythm. And, and you know, although I'm pretty outgoing, I would say, and an extrovert at times, I do can get kind of shy, especially when you're in Italy and you don't speak Italian, right? And, and on that trip, I realized that I could even despite myself, have some of the classic European travel adventures that that most people have. And I felt like I added parts of my life experience on that trip a little bit, you know, a few years later than normal people would have. Like, I'm not, I didn't backpack through Europe. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, you know my back situation. <laughs> That's just not going <laughs> to happen. But, you know, I, you know, was in Cinque Terre, ended up skinny dipping, not skinny dipping, with my underwear, swimming in the ocean with, like, two women I just met on the trail. Like, that doesn't sound like me. That's not what I do. But I, I did that. It was kind of fun. <laughs> and, you know, uh, talk, you know, chatting people up on trains and just, right. you know, learn, learning about people's lives and having great conversations with people from Dallas, from Vancouver, actually, because we all had MEC bags. Like, oh, right. You know, that, that was a great experience. It reminded me that I, I, I knew how to live. Yeah, right. And I could take advantage of life moments that were in front of me as opposed to just cowering away from it or kind of like, oh, well, that's not what my norm is. Because I can, you know, like everyone can be a bit of a homebody, get used to a rhythm and a routine. And, uh, yeah, so I think about that fondly as being way where I found myself as a traveler. Do you think that having... um, Do you think... Part of figuring out life is, is actually doing those things, enjoying the experiences. Do you think we can have just, like you say, like stay at home and just kind of... Do you think that's best how we learn? Like, like is that you what know, informs us? Or do you think we can we can actually get it all from Twitter and, and other things like that? Is, that? is that crucial? Is that a must? Getting out amongst different people and getting out there? I think we learn from experience. Uh, how we define experiences, I guess, up to the individual. I mean, I, I, the work I do at the university is about getting, working with organizations to create experiences or places for experience where students can come and learn. Uh, because, you know, learning in a lecture hall is a certain value. Learning from a textbook is a certain value. Right. Learning from being out there is another value. Right. Right. And, and I think a full a full life lived and a full life being lived involves some combination of all of it. Right. Uh, you know, I think there's a time and place for social media. I'm, you know, on Twitter, you know, seeing what's going through my feed just as much <laughs> as everyone is. <laughs> Posting food on Instagram, that's right. what I do, right? Um, so, I, you know, and you know this about me, uh, which is, I guess, part of what you were saying earlier about, like, I'm never one to poo-poo anything. Like, yeah. like when someone, when people or society starts to, you know, shat on something so quickly and easily, <laughs> That's right. I'm like, wait a second. Yeah. What's going on here, right? Like, you know, our big debate about our 10th year high school reunion, oh, everyone geez. was so quickly 
anti-reunion and all legitimate reasons. My my gut, as you know, my initial reaction was, yeah. why are we so negative about this? You know, like, <laughs> is it really that bad? Right? And so that's, I don't know where that comes from. I mean, from a lot of what we talked about is, is probably, you know, parts of all that put together has made that knee-jerk reaction of, wait a second, uh, possible. And so I think this, for the, your question, that, that's my answer there too, is like, I, I, I don't think, I think it, it just can't be all about one thing. Yeah, uh, experience based on one definition of the word experience. Right. Because some people just, there aren't, they, they, they have a certain comfort zone as if they, and if they can live and experience life in that comfort zone, then that's still an experience for them. Uh, and for, for, for those individuals or that person or what have you. Um, and who are we to judge, right? Uh, I, I guess I'm always like, who are we to judge? Who am I to judge? I think that, that, that's a great way to actually encapsulate everything is how you kind of approach everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's something about like, I, I think about sort of the important social values of, that are under debate right now in our, and they're not less so in Canada, I would say, when you think about like abortion and gay marriage, right? Like the big social issues. Right. And I would say encapsulating, I mean, <laughs> Maybe we're trying to close it, but I'm now opening up gay marriages. No, no. <laughs> by all means, keep going. But I, I, I guess that's where it comes from—a a bit of that humble place. Like, yeah, who am I to judge? Like, well, one, I just believe in love, so gay marriage is just a no-brainer. Just a no-brainer. Uh, like, just, uh, just, it just happens. Like, and yeah, that's, that's what like, happens. When people love each other, like I, like I've said to you before, I'm probably again not necessarily on the podcast, but like. I know how hard it is to fall in love. <laughs> like, if two people fall in love, and if you fall in love with someone, and that person falls in love with you back, in a free will situation, hello, thumbs yeah. up, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yay. Yeah, no, that's a good way to... And, and then I think about the abortion point of view, and, you know, sometimes I feel like ill-equipped to answer some of these bigger questions, mm-hmm. but when I, un- I unpack this to someone, and she said to me, that's a very humble way of approaching it i said you know i will never bear a child right so i will never be confronted <laughs> with someone has raped me and impregnated me or i am pregnant and there's a risk to my own survival as a human being it just will never happen to me so how can I create a judgment on that situation? Absolutely. So I, by definition, have to be pro-choice. <laughs> like it just defaulted. It, to... It's defaulted to pro-choice <laughs> because I can't even begin to fathom the what is that even about? How would that even handle that situation? And fifty percent of the population has to deal with that mm-hmm. circumstance, theoretical, real, what have you. Mm-hmm. And so I really have abdicate any claim. To actually saying that I like should saying otherwise. Uh, saying otherwise right so yeah by definition I'm pro-choice <laughs> and someone said oh that's a really you know humble way of saying it I'm like oh really well like, you just you follow things to conclusion like it just makes <laughs> it just kind of makes sense so I don't know but it's just yeah it's like who am I to judge aside from uh, like work and uh, careers one last thing I want to ask you what Aside, you know, you've mentioned the possi- possibility years ago when you thought of opening a jazz club, but what, yeah. what is there left? There's a lot left for us since we're still obviously relatively young, but what, 
what other kind of things would you do if, if you said tomorrow I got to start doing something else? What what would the next thing that 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 makes Justin? What what is that next? Huh. The what first is, or, thing you came that first thing came to my mind it was a real bad joke. I'm like I'm gonna be the, <laughs> the world's best lover is what I was thinking in my head. <laughs> You're not? <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, what it, in other words, what is it you want to do? What is, what is we all have a bucket list, but instead of it looking at it like that, yeah. what's another uh, thing that, uh, that, that oh. is part of you that you want to pull out of yourself? Wow. That... That is one tough question. <laughs> <laughs> it could be curling. It could be. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I have to say I've I've slowly chipped away at things. Yeah. Uh, over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. because I think I I kind of I remember you and I walking in downtown, and I was just sort of making the resolution to myself. I said, you know, my, my I want to take less. I want to be less. Um, I think one of my resolutions is not to be stupid. And I said, I want to not be not stupid, right? And you're just be a little bit more risk-taking. And, and I, I think about that conversation I had with you in, in and around New Year's with another conversation I had with a friend of mine uh, who I've worked with in community for years. And I said to her, I said, Judy, I, I made a realization to myself to tell myself that I wasn't happy. Mm. And I said this to Vanessa too, and she thought I was going to commit suicide or was, was having suicidal thoughts oh, no, which is no. you know a fair assumption and I said no 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 it's not that I'm not I just you know at a certain point you can be complacent about stuff in your life and sure. and I think we all go through that yeah every single one of us yeah, yeah and we don't allow ourselves in a first world country with first world problems to just admit you know I'm not happy yeah. like just yeah. something's not right right and I said to my friend Judy I just need to say this out loud that I'm just yeah, I'm not happy. I don't know what I need to change, but I need to change something. Sure. And um, so I think about those two pieces of realizations that are really empowering. To just sort of admit to yourself that, okay, you know, if you say it out loud, then you kind of have to do something about it. And, you know, so little things like I finally drove by the curling rink and said, you know, this year I'm going to do it. Yeah. And now I'm into year three and, have, cool. and loving it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I... I, you know, we talk about doing Tough Mudder, and I'm not that was on my bucket list or something, but, like, I have become probably the most fit I've ever been in my life. So I feel there's a lot more open to me to want to do other things, right? Like when our friend Simone is talking about doing, you know, one of those triathlon kind of things, I'm actually flirting with the idea. Yeah, I know. You know, like, it's, like, what the fuck? (laughs) So I... It's hard to answer that question because I think it there isn't one huge thing. I mean, other. I mean, I mean, we talk about travel, and I and I and I'm committing to myself. I want to do this next year because I realize I got the dates wrong in terms of when the dry season was. But I really do want to do Tikal and the ruins in Guatemala. Oh, cool! Uh, because you know, in grade seven, we did the Mayan mm-hmm. and the Incas and the whatever, and I did the Mayan ruins, and and I that's a that's definitely a, a bucket list kind of thing. Um. You know, and, you know, I mean, I, it was like the crappy novels, but I did write, you know, those three-day novel writing contests, and I wrote a novel, and I felt That's like right. that was awesome. I feel like you'd never share it with anyone, but at least it was done. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, there's, I've been fortunate enough to have a life of privilege in that I can take those chances. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Maybe I, it remains to be seen. Yeah. And I, yeah, I just, yeah, that's a fascinating question. <laughs> that is a fascinating question. I don't know, maybe in some level I've kind of actually got you thinking like you maybe yeah. you hadn't before, but... That is real. Like, that's... and I, you know, I know it's all about me, not about you, but I always wonder, like, I mean, you came up with that question, and I wonder, do you have an answer for that for yourself? Like, it, has that just been well, something that's in your mind that would, that would fit that in, that would fit that question? Well, I think it, you know, it's... I think, you know, even though we've we've each followed a different path, but we've been relatively consistent with that once we kind of found our way a bit. Um, we're never one to actually just close the door to, like, certain possibilities. So I think, you know, whereas some people are like, okay, this is my path, I'm going to stay on this, come hell or hard water, I'm going to attain that one thing. I don't think you and I are like that. And that's why I was kind of curious about you because, well, you've gone, you know, you've, you, I think for, correct me if I'm wrong, for you and for me, it's, it's, it's about, yes, trying to go after something, but it's also seeing kind of where the road leads us. Right. It's like a, like a, a balance of that. For me though, I, yeah, I, I mean, there, there's a, yeah, I, there's a ton more music I'd love to do. That I haven't uh, done yet. Uh, there's a lot of cool things we've done musically that uh, that I've done so far with you know traveling and we might travel more next year and uh, um, you know I've, for me the one cool thing was I've I've been in bands that um, that I've been proud of and and including the current one but the previous bands there was aspects about those different bands that I was really happy about and uh, a pleasure to do it. Um, but I think. Yeah, I mean, I like to travel more, but um, I think I'd like to just be even more creative. Because mm. I think, you know, we have the things that we do day-to-day life. You know, there's our home life. There's our, you know, stuff with our families. and But I think actually devoting a bit of each day to something a little more creative, mm. I think, is, is, is kind of the goal for me. Mm. Actually taking that time out of checking Facebook about 10 million times a day and actually <laughs> sitting down to either, whether it's uh, looking at music or writing or anything like that, I think is kind of hmm. my goal. But you know, It's funny because as you were answering your question, I started to, to rethink about, what, or not rethink, but just profoundly think about the question too on my end. And it's funny because if you think about your question as like, what's the next thing or what's the big thing you would do alternatively? And your mind always goes to first to career, right? Or just what are you doing professionally? Oh yeah. Right? It, you know, it doesn't have to be just and, that. And it's funny because I think it's also a product of where we are in our lives. You know, I, I and I work with a lot of younger staff who right. I work with and you're, you, you're meeting a lot of students who are, you know, finishing up their degrees, getting into the workforce and and is like what's next in my career is a big thing 
And, you know, it's always going to be, be a big thing, but I've never once, okay, I'm going to now work in co-ops, or now I'm going to go work right. in the university, and then I strive for that. Like, I think careers are more happenstance than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree. I agree. And, and but early years, you're really driving towards, like, trying to define that. And so I, I wouldn't say professionally, I'm yearning for the next thing, or, like, you know, am I going to be an executive director in a charitable organization or a social service agency, or am I going to be... Uh, higher up in the university world like who knows and all of that's possible and sure. i will like open a jazz club sure you never know right it's all all of that and i'm open to it all you know but when i think about you know what's in it what's what else is there in me that's yearning to get out which is your original question mm-hmm. i would say it's those stereotypical things that are part of your progression as a human being. Yeah. Uh, and I would say it's going to be sound really weird mm-hmm. or really, um, well, not weird, because you, you will, of course, you're going to say this. And Tara, if she was like, of course, you're going to say this. Like, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't mind being, well, I wouldn't mind being, so now I'm saying I wouldn't mind being dot, dot, dot. That's totally not the right way to start this. But, you know, I think being a parent would be one cool. of those things yeah. that I know it's in me. Like, I just Absolutely. know it. Oh, yeah. And uh, and I think I would kick ass at it. Yeah, you would. <laughs> I mean, not perfect. No one's perfect at it. But I, I think I've got a, a combination of experience over experience over experience that would help me be successful at whatever that looks like. And I would love to do that at some point in my life in that way. Because um, I think about, you know, all the work I do in community and all these, you know, a whole conversation we've had about, like, principles, like, to be able to impart that on someone who is your community, like your inner community, which is family, right, is significant. And I would love to do that at some point, however that would materialize, uh, uh, knowing how inept I am on the relationship side of things, right? And I would say, you know, I think there's a lot in me around just building that more intimate network of spouse or partner and kids that I'd love to tackle sometime. Awesome. <laughs> it would be really interesting. And I, and not in a way that I'm like, oh, Lord, how awful is Justin Houston single for whatever, you know. I mean, and people can have that, dis, you know, observation, whatever. Uh, but I'm very comfortable. Like, I mean, just in the you know, answer I was giving to this question before I gave this really weird personal answer. Uh, you know, I feel really good about Excellent. everything. And, you know, the worst thing to get into that sort of more family, spouse, partner conversation is when you're not in that good place, you know? Right, right. And I think everyone's been in those places where, like, oh, you know, I'm something's off, I'm not happy, and you know how I'm going to solve that? By a kid. Or I'm going to solve that right. by getting into a relationship, that person will give me the love that I don't have for myself or whatever. And that's a very harsh, stereotypical way of saying it. But people have gotten into relationships with that in mind, with that, Mm -hmm. you know, even less than that. And I'm thinking about it as a, as a reciprocal kind of thing, right? Like, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a part of me that I haven't tapped into. And I, and I think about this interestingly, because I think about the relationships that I've had, uh, you know, the relationship I would assume after me or shortly after me lend, lent themselves to marriage. 
Yeah. Like, um, uh, my first, which, uh, which was a long relationship, she ended up marrying the second person she had the relationship with. And my most recent one, I don't know if I told you this, um, I, I think she guys got married too. Oh, you're kidding. So, and I always wonder about like, you know, what did I help them learn <laughs> about how does it mean to be in a, you know, reciprocal, sure. mutually honorable, you know, relationship, uh, uh, of trust and all that sort of stuff and I'm going this is where I'm starting to be pompous and, <laughs> and you know whatever uh, almost like where's the fucking <laughs> and, and so I so I mean not to say that that's just truth to anything I've said about that but I like to think that I've learned a lot from those relationships and I hope that you know I've been able to see some positive thinking about what does it mean to be in a collaborative meaningful relationship is i don't think you can have a relationship any other way i mean the traditional ways of you know master and commander and right you know um gender inequality those are gone yeah they're totally gone and oh i mean they should be gone they're not necessarily in reality gone but like that's not the kind of healthy relationship i think that lasts in today's world uh so i would say that is part of what in whatever form it comes to and um, and that's another thing I've always thought about life is that, you know, you can visualize what success is, but be open to success being coming to you in any way it ends up coming to you. Right, right exactly. You know, and I think we've had that discussion too, I think. I'm having a discussion on a SkyTrain or something with you about that. For some, I don't know why I'm imagining, but I'm visualizing us having the exact conversation on the SkyTrain. We do it everywhere. We need to be uh, have microphones built in. That's true. But anyway, that's a, another weird answer, but... Yeah, your question really made me think. Excellent. Well, I'm glad. Well, I uh, I hope all of our listeners enjoyed uh, this two-part series. <laughs> and uh, I think that's a good place to end it. Um, so I, I had a ton of fun doing that. This Being is great. I love it. the interviewer end, right? You're the interviewee. Yes. yes. And hopefully as we go along, you know, we'll, we'll bring other people into the mix and yeah. um, find out what makes them tick. Oh, I think we totally got to bring Tara in at, at, oh, at yeah. minimum. <laughs> and she's, and she's num- number one. She's first. Love it. Okay, well, you can find us at the.matrix.com. You can download us on iTunes. And, uh, yeah, please check us out. Our, there's our Facebook page as well. Um, so, yeah, uh, happy listening and hope you enjoy. Till next time. Bye.